Are you looking for the best in-depth training for your cyber defense team? Look no further than SANS Blue Team courses. Whether you focus on network or host data, Windows, Linux, or even specialize in open source intelligence, SIEM, SOC, or defensive architecture, the SANS Blue Team curriculum has the course for you. From longtime classics like SEC 503, Network Intrusion Detection, to the newer SEC 530, Defensible Security Architecture and Engineering, and SEC 487, Open Source Intelligence Gathering, no matter what your specialty, we've got you covered. With an extensive archive of free webcasts on the SANS site and free online demos available for most courses, you can easily check out the SANS Blue Team catalog and see which course is the best fit for you and your team. Check out the constantly growing list of available courses at sansurl.com slash blueteamops. This is the Blueprint Podcast, bringing you the latest in cyber defense and security operations from top Blue Team leaders. Blueprint is brought to you by the SANS Institute and is hosted by SANS Certified Instructor John Hubbard. And now, here's your host, John Hubbard. Vulnerabilities. You know you have them, we know you have them. But what are you going to do about them? Today on the podcast, we talk with vulnerability management expert Chris Baker on the tools, technology, and tracking of vulnerabilities. We cover how to prioritize which vulnerabilities are most important, how to inspire system owners to take action, and how to measure the effectiveness of your patching and vulnerability management program. All that and more today on the Blueprint Podcast. Welcome to Blueprint, everyone. Today on the podcast, we've got a super important topic for keeping your organization secure, and that is vulnerability management. For this topic, I didn't have to go very far. I have someone today on the show that I've known for a long time, good friend of mine, previous coworker and colleague, fellow resident of the Philadelphia region, and most importantly, someone who's been working in vulnerability management for a long time. Uh, That is Chris Baker. Chris, welcome to the show. Glad to finally have you on the podcast here. Hey, John. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for the invitation. So let's start off with your background. Give listeners an idea of the kind of roles you've had in the past and what you've done in the realm of vulnerability management over the years. Sure thing. So for the last 10 plus years, I've been the director of cybersecurity operations at uh, several Fortune 500 companies. And that has included things like AppSec testing, DevSecOps, vulnerability scanning, vuln management, penetration testing, red team, purple team, et cetera, even got involved in some incident response. So yeah, I worked in large companies, worked in healthcare for most of that time, provided some advisory services like virtual CISO sort of uh, activities for some small and medium-sized businesses in addition to the Fortune 500. And I also teach part-time for SANS, the SEC 560 network pen testing and ethical hacking course. I've done that for about the last five years. Fantastic. So yeah, you've clearly seen a little bit of everything and and been around the block and know your way around this uh, topic pretty well. A little bit. (laughs) So to start off, broad, easy question, right? How important is vulnerability management really? Are attackers going to find that one thing that we forgot to patch? (laughs) Uh, That's a great question. Yeah, there isn't just one thing we forgot to patch or we consciously (laughs) decided not to patch, right? There's always something out there. And I think the, the the challenge for us as in vulnerability management is trying to make best use of the limited resources that we have available to us to patch the things that are the highest probability of being noticed, being exploited, and, you know, spread the resource out the best way we can. So, 
Yes, as a as an attacker, they will find something, and it's our job to make sure that that's that minimize the attack surface, right? Yep. So there's a lot of things I want to unpack in that kind of uh, broad overview of, of vulnerability management there. One is good use of resources and just kind of planning out this as a function within an organization. So uh, to start off, if you were like building a vulnerability management, I guess, uh, group or team for a small, medium sized organization, how might you go about like starting to do that? What kind of tools would you need? How would you organize that group? Vulnerabilities can come from a lot of different sources. Immediately, I think what most of us think when we think of vulnerability management is vulnerability scanners. You know, tools like uh, Nessus from Tenable, even Nmap, you know, a common tool in the Kali tool set or in the vulnerability management realm. These are common tools for vulnerability scanning, and they're not the only source for vulnerabilities uh, data. So vulnerability data can also come through penetration tests can come through anonymous tips, can come through bug bounties. There's lots of ways that vulnerabilities can be identified by an organization. I think to answer your question, where to get started, a lot of companies will probably want to start with the basics, start with some vulnerability scanning capabilities. Make sure that you're doing some routine scanning of your internal network on a weekly, monthly basis, maybe quarterly basis, depending on what your organization is into, you know, are you into high tech? Are you into, you know, government work or do you make shoes? It all depends on your risk profile. So I think that's probably where I'd get started. Find yourself someone who really knows the um, system administration and how to secure servers and get started with some vulnerability scanners. One question I commonly get is like vulnerability management, patching kind of as a team and as a group, should that be something that's part of the SOC, like inside it, underneath the same umbrella, same director, or is that like a peer organization? Does that matter? How would you decide where to place this kind of functionality within an organization in terms of the org chart? You know, I, I wouldn't say in, in an organization you would want to force it either into or out of the security operations center. It all depends on where the talent is where the bandwidth lies. You know, I, I kind of describe the, you know, security operations in sort of three ways, sort of the holy trinity of security operations. You know, one being understanding the threat that is being presented to you and your organization, understanding the vulnerabilities that could be exploited by those threats. That's where vulnerability management would typically sit. And then the third piece really is trying to detect and appropriately respond to the exploits of those vulnerabilities by the threats that we just mentioned. So they're tightly linked. They might all be linked within the same functional group being the security operations center, or you might focus your SOC on the detection and response uh, portion, in which case you'd probably want that nearby, but maybe outside the SOC. The First thing you mentioned there, the well, actually, maybe the first two pieces, the threat and the vulnerability part of the Trinity of security sure. operations. Uh, that's kind of the two pieces you're always looking at, right, is what do yep. we have and what is it vulnerable to? And then what's on the outside and what's actually potentially going to get attacked? Because if you have something that's vulnerable, no one's attacking it, right? Not a huge <laughs> deal. Yeah. So let's take the first thing there. The threats that are outside, is there some way as a vulnerability management team that you would, where would you go to like understand what are the things we are going to actually be attacked with and what exploits are going to be actually used by attackers? Interesting question. You know, that's like reading the mind of the threats that are being posed against the organization. 
I think it all depends on intel that we receive from nearby sources. Maybe you're a member of an ISAC and you get some intel from that source. Maybe you've got some executives who have some opinions. You know, there might be board members who sit on like companies and you might get some intel from that source as well. But, um, you know, you're constantly evaluating, you know, the threats. And as a security guy, you know, maybe a long-term security guy, I have to catch myself and catch others around me, always slipping into that eternal paranoia. There's someone out there, someone with better tools, someone who's innovated, someone who's got a zero day. And really, you know, focus, like I said earlier, on prioritizing your resource. You know, where is that hour of time best spent? Is it spent best on dressing all the CVSS 7.0s and higher? Or should we really look at those that have a weaponized POC available that are being used by the threats that are commonly attacking us, that our threat intel group has identified as significant threats, maybe the top five, top 10, relevant to our either our company or our industry? And I think that's probably where I would start. And I think that's probably a good segue into the second piece of this, then the vulnerability aspect itself, right? When we previously had worked together, we were in a network with hundreds of thousands of endpoints and plenty of vulnerabilities potentially to go around in a network that large. When you're looking at the results of a vulnerability scan on an enormous network or really any network, what are the things you're looking at to say, like, these are the items that clearly have to be addressed right now versus as soon as possible versus longer term? We'll be back after a quick break. If you're enjoying this episode, then you're undoubtedly interested in building the strongest security operations team that you can. For those who want to go even deeper, did you know that SANS has not one, but two courses that cover security operations centers as well? For the leaders, managers, and directors out there, my co-author Mark Orlando and I offer 551, Building and Leading Security Operations Centers. This course covers building your team, your physical and virtual workspace, getting the right data into your tools, and then focusing on security priorities through everyday execution of important security tasks and building the best SOC team possible. For the technical practitioners out there, my course SEC 450, Blue Team Fundamentals, Security Operations and Analysis, is designed to cover everything you need to jump in being the best SOC analyst that you can be. We cover important data types, SOC tools, security logs, malware, analysis technique, automation, and much, much more. In addition, if you want to prove you can deliver the best on any security team, both courses have an accompanying certification available from GIAC. That's the GSOM for 551 and the GSOC for 450. Check out both courses and free demos available on the SANS website. You can get registered today for an in-person course at one of our many events, or go to On Demand and take either class anywhere at your own pace. Thanks for listening. If you get queasy when you see, you know, millions of vulnerabilities in your environment, this is probably not the job for you. <laughs> it's better, I think, for someone who can look at that and, and say, you know, how am I going to uh, boil this ocean? And so, you know, I would look for those, like I mentioned earlier, that are high probability of being targeted, exploited, uh, reachable by an attacker. Back in the day, um, the only thing we really had was CVSS score. And it was a very common practice for most companies to go after CVSS 9 or sometimes even CVSS 7 or higher and try and address all those. Now, there's always new vulnerabilities coming into the picture. Your mileage may vary, you know, with a strategy like that. And so a couple of years ago, I think it was at Black Hat 2019, there was some really groundbreaking research, I think, uh, that came out of Kenna and what they did basically was look at a number of characteristics that vulnerabilities have. Those are things like 
is there a weaponized POC available for that vulnerability? What's the vendor of the software? It's no surprise that vendors like Microsoft, Apple, those vendors are attacked more often successfully than many of the other vendors, including, you know, software like SAP. So they came up with this scoring system. I think it's called the EPSS scoring system. I can double check that. But this scoring system will give you a rating that helps you focus in on those vulnerabilities, those individual vulnerabilities that are basically would give you the highest risk reduction if you address those and those alone. And the presentation by Kenna essentially said, you know, if you have a finite number of resources, let's say a a certain number of hours each month that you can spend on patching, on applying those security patches, you could spend that patching all the CVSS seven or higher, or you could use this methodology to find the maybe fraction of those that you could patch very quickly and very easily, and then have time left over to start looking at other vectors, other avenues, other vulnerabilities, and you achieve the exact same risk reduction for a fraction of the effort. That's really interesting. So I've seen some similar research to that. I don't think it went into vendors and other things, but it was a talk, I think, from 2013 or so that was doing the math on saying, you know, if you had only patched the things that were known to have a real exploit that was available in the wild, how much better you actually would have done than just prioritizing based on CVSS. And so, yeah, that's interesting to see that there's an additional talk out there kind of backing that up. I hadn't seen that one. I'll have to check that out. Indeed. In fact, one of the criteria that were being looked at by Kenna was whether or not that vulnerability was popular in the internet chat rooms. You know, if there are attackers talking about exploiting a vulnerability, there's a higher likelihood that you're going to see actual attacks, you know, manifest themselves in your organization. So uh, it's really, I think, groundbreaking research. I don't know if it's made it into their product yet, but I really like that philosophy. Achieve the same risk reduction with a fraction of the effort and then reallocate that resource to additional, more important venues than patching your CVSS 7s that uh, there's no weaponized POC for. Very cool. Yeah. Uh In the realm of, you know, looking for exploitable things and disaster kind of uh, scenarios, we've had a number of things happen recently, uh, solar winds and the proxy logon vulnerability and all these other like, and this happens all the time, right? Vulnerabilities show up and you're like, you know, at home or whatever, and all of a sudden the sky is falling. It's Um, usually on the week before Christmas or after Christmas. Yeah, right. (laughs) Uh, As someone in your position, like when you first hear about we have a major problem here, it's a remote code execution vulnerability. It's something that you probably have on your network. Where does your mind go with that? Like, how do you start to triage what needs to happen immediately? and, And what are you thinking at that point in time? Oh, it's funny. You know, this... I've been around in this space ever since Heartbleed back in 2014. And that question kind of hit us out of the blue when Heartbleed was announced. You know, we were told there was this serious vulnerability, the worst thing to hit the web, you know, ever. And remember, back at that time, information security teams had a lot of experience dealing with viruses, dealing with worms, things like that, but hadn't really wrapped their arms around a large-scale vulnerability like a Heartbleed, a shell shock, Poodle, you know, crack. You know, I'm going back a long ways, I realize that. But that made us really think about how are we going to solve this problem differently than a virus, right? You want to contain that virus right away. There's damage being done, potentially. It's spreading. 
you have to think differently about a vulnerability like a well, like a heart bleed or like a solar winds vulnerability or eternal blue. And, you know, I remember when eternal blue and frankly, the whole suite of NSA tools that were taken by shadow brokers were starting to be weaponized. You know, we were asking the question, you know, why do we have RDP listening on all of our laptops? Why are services that are not needed enabled? And so what we do when the news breaks is we try and understand, you know, and it's always a different, a new, different technology, right? If you look at Apache, Apache Struts, if you look at SolarWinds, you know, if you look at MageCart, very different delivery mechanisms. And so each one is an education. You got to put on your, your glasses and start reading up on what these technologies are. How do they work? You know, what's the threat profile? Do they store creds? Are they available remotely? And then you got to build up you know, your strategy for how to address it. You know, sometimes it's as easy as applying the vendor patch. Sometimes, as we saw with the Netscaler vulnerability back in 2019, that patch wasn't available yet, but they did make a hotfix available for us. So then it became a matter of applying the hotfix. Well, guess what? That came out right when most companies were preparing for year-end close. So are you going to take your Netscalers offline, even temporarily, to facilitate the application of a hotfix during year-end close? No, you're not. At least most companies aren't. So then you've got to have a backup strategy. You've got to have a monitoring strategy. What happens if we see evidence of exploitation? What are the indicators? That was a particularly interesting one, Netscaler, because there was that hotfix released. There was a patch released about three weeks later. Someone came out and published the exploit, uh, I think it was late on a Friday, the first week in January, if I remember correctly. Uh, and one of the most interesting parts of that experience was that I think a lot of security researchers had actually figured out what the exploit was, and they were kind of just waiting for that exploit to drop. So on that Friday afternoon around five o'clock when it dropped, what you saw within about an hour, TrustedSec had posted the exploit on their website. They had posted the indicators of the attack on their website, and they had posted a blog saying, here's what you do as a defender to identify the exploit that either has happened or is about to happen to really get us all prepared for defending against that. So those are some of the things I think that go through your mind when you hear that, you know, oh, there's another, there's there's another uh, large-scale vulnerability. I mean, John, I'll be honest, the, one of the first things that goes through my mind is, you know, is this one going to have its own logo and its own website? Because uh, then you know it's big, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> yep, always more important when you get the logo involved, right? <laughs> yep. So in those cases where there is an exploit and it's like widely applicable to a lot of things within your network and you start to realize, all right, this is something we have to patch and we have to patch it as fast as possible right now. Of course, the goal is to get that everywhere as quickly as you can. But as we both know, that kind of thing doesn't happen. Is there any specific targets you try to hit or ways you look at the data from when you go to 0% patch towards moving towards 100%? And, and what are the strategies you kind of use along the way to get people who may not be super inspired and may not be security people and see the world as you do to actually want to do this kind of thing and, and get their systems secured? Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with a um, VP 
in one of our business lines once. And this VP was concerned that his laptop had vulnerabilities on it. I said, you know, rest assured, your laptop almost certainly has 15 critical vulnerabilities on it. He started to kind of get upset and worried and and say, you know, well, how can I do something about this? And I said, honestly, you can't. You don't have permission to patch your laptop. But you know who does? Infrastructure team, right? The central IT team. They're the ones who take care of patching your laptop. And so, you know, his next question was, well, why aren't they patching it? Why aren't they applying the 15, you know, missing patches? And, you know, the answer is not one that a lot of people really like hearing. You know, it's uh, maybe there's a business need for us to have this application around. I'll be honest, I just studied this. Oftentimes, patches require a reboot in order to terminate processes and release file locks and things like that to really bake in the patch. And there are about 25% of users who reboot their laptop every week. At least there was at the time that I studied it. Now, that might change. It might actually be worse nowadays uh, with a lot of people working from home. But if that's the case, you know, those vulnerabilities will remain as long as that process is there. And so, you know, trying to change the hearts and minds of people, not just, you know, users like you and me who may have to reboot our laptop or may have to stop deferring that thermometer that's, you know, saying, oh, I only have four hours left before my machine needs to reboot and apply these patches. And then I'll be down for, you know, who knows, 15 minutes, 20 minutes. I'll be late for my next meeting, all of that. But also the server owners and the owners of the critical, you know, business critical applications. Those applications maybe have high availability requirements, can only go down once per year for a total of five minutes of planned downtime. And that downtime is usually the week between Christmas and New Year's when not a lot of people are using it. Maybe you get lucky and there's another window in August when everyone's on vacation. So it's just a matter of really understanding what the threat is to the organization. What's the likelihood? an impact of that vulnerability being exploited and trying to win the hearts and minds of the populace, right? Whether it be application owners, users, depending on, you know, what system you're talking about and what sort of vulnerability you're talking about, you could have your job cut out for you. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's a really interesting number. I, I think I actually remembered you back when you were calculating that the actual time in between reboots. And, and I think you mentioned that to me at the time. I was like, oh, wow, that's more than I thought. I reboot like once that's a month. That's more than I know. Because <laughs> I mean, I myself, right? I can't tell you the last time I rebooted my laptop unless it says like, this is an update. You need to do it, right? I'm conscious of the importance there. But the average user is probably like, I don't know why I need to reboot this thing. And, that's you right. know, it's just always an irritation. So yeah, the, uh, the winning the hearts and minds thing is always a challenge. I remember you setting up some other things in the past, you know, various dashboards and ways of communicating in terms of different business units and other things like that, kind of showing what's out there. Have you decided on any kind of best practice or any uh, standards? I mean, not standards, but uh, strategies to help get that information out and encourage kind of people collectively to take action? Right. Really, my eyes were opened recently when we did a lot of work to collect data on vulnerabilities. And coming from, you know, organizations, large organizations are going literally going to have millions of vulnerabilities. And my eyes were opened because we weren't presenting that data to the people who could actually take action on those. And, you know, when you're talking on that scale, it's very difficult. There's so many things about that that are difficult, and I really can't touch on all of them here. But for example, how do I know what devices you're responsible for? I might go to a CMDB, 
if we do a good job in this organization of, of keeping that CMDB up to date, my scanner will, you know, correlate a vulnerability to an IP address. And if the CMDB says John Hubbard owns this IP address, great, I can tie that data back and, and let John know. But at the time, we weren't doing that for two reasons. One was, you know, CMDBs in some organizations are not the best and other organizations, you know, really are much worse than that. And so the other reason I think is there are so many, you know, in an organization, a Fortune 500 organization, especially if you're someone in IT, you're going to get potentially a report with thousands of rows uh, on that report. And, you know, if we can't do a good job of one, proving that they're yours or validating that they're yours before we give you the data, or two, helping you zero in on those ones that are the, the most important, right? If we can't prioritize those as vulnerability managers, then we can't expect you to do the same. And so what I've seen, I've actually seen uh, a couple of different approaches to this. On the face of trying to get the vulnerabilities addressed, it's important to put that data in front of the people who are responsible for it. And my strong opinion, and this gets debated quite a bit, but my strong opinion is that that person who's ultimately accountable is the owner of the application that that data or that that, that system is a part of. Uh, and the reason I say that is because, you know, in a lot of organizations, the central IT infrastructure team will deliver infrastructure. They'll deliver a server. Maybe it's, you know, if you're in a cloud world, they'll build you an instance and they'll give that to you. Then you go and you take it and you install a bunch of, you know, your business application software on top of it, right? Patch Tuesday comes along and the infrastructure team would like to apply the uh, Windows patch for your Windows 2019 server that you just had built. And you tell them, stop. No, you can't do that. This is a business critical application and we can't allow for downtime. So you can't patch my server, right? This creates a lot of problems for the infrastructure team, the, the central patching team. I've heard them call lots of different things. Release team is another name. But this team now has to treat that and all the others like an exception. That increases, you know, the, the IT spend, of course. But we're doing it in an attempt to accommodate the application owner. But what that does is that firmly places the accountability on that person to either apply the patches themselves call up IT and say, okay, now it's time. I'd like you to apply the patch. You know, but a lot of organizations, unfortunately, use that as you know, a pass to not patch their application. And that's how we get into you know, situations like we've seen in the past where you know, servers just linger unpatched or maybe they linger with unsupported operating systems. You know, how many large organizations, you know, Fortune 500 organizations, can put their hand on heart and say, we have absolutely no Windows 2003 running in our environment today, <laughs> you know, and 2003 went end of support in 2015. I think it was July 14th of 2015. So we're going on almost six years. And you know what? It's always the most critical business application that's running that Windows 2003, <laughs> right? Yep. So it's still there. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> so... 
when you deliver that thousands of lines of, of potential issues, uh, you mentioned helping them zero in. Uh, is there any specific tactics that you said are like, here's your gigantic file of problems, but like these are the ones you have to focus on? Is that just communicating that in an email or are there like more data centric ways that you would try to communicate that? In fact, uh, a, a coworker developed a mechanism to deliver that information using a Power BI dashboard. So you would log into Power BI with your company account. We would associate that with all of your records based on the CMDB, and you would be presented a list of several thousand vulnerabilities in many cases. In some cases, you get lucky, right? You've got one or two servers you're responsible for. In our case, we didn't show workstation data because that's a little bit more difficult to correlate to a user. But we were able to present that info. And the first bit of feedback we got was, well, which of these, you know, 2000 things do you want me to act on? And so that's where we brought in that Kenner research that I mentioned earlier and highlighted, sorted, colored red those things that we wanted them to act on. And then if you couple that with a with a clever system for opening risk exceptions or opening tickets, maybe in service now to address those things, you actually could automate what could be a very labor intensive process if you don't have all of that in place, you know, by stitching it all together into, you know, a single interface that you can spawn, you know, a ticket to the release team, to the infrastructure team to apply that patch. And then a rescan later comes through. And that starts to drop off your list. So, yeah, there's some clever things I've seen. I've also seen vulnerability data loaded into a SIM, which is actually pretty neat from a, a blue team perspective. If you're working a, a case involving a, a particular server or two, you can go right in, you know, your SIM, be it Splunk, Elasticsearch, Exabeam, whatever, and view the vulnerability data for that. And what I'd like to do, so one of the things that I'm really considering, you know, for next step is how do we put that in the context? So you don't have to go looking for it. It just presents itself right there on your single pane of glass, right? Sorry, I said single pane of glass. It's not, <laughs> I know that's a sore point, but I'm a vulnerability manager after all. <laughs> no, no, good stuff. I was going to ask, in terms of those visualizations and the workflow, this is kind of an open-ended question to throw you on the spot, but what would you think would be like the ideal interaction? Like if you were a person that was in charge of you know, systems that added up to thousands of vulnerabilities and you're logging into this Power BI desktop, what do you think that person should see immediately on that desktop in terms of the different items that you said, like from the Kenner research and, and things like that? Mm -hmm. And then what would you like their workflow to be like from that point? And if you could make the ideal kind of automated, it's all just happens as it should, least painful kind of system. Ooh, um, I think you've got a interface that, one is easy to log into, right? You're using your corporate creds. It comes up with maybe a list of devices that you're responsible for. You can double check to make sure that that list is, you know, correct and complete. And then correlates to the to that the vulnerabilities on each of those devices that prioritize the way we described earlier with the Kenner research, et cetera, in the order essentially that we would like you to address them. That might not be the order that you would like them addressed. There might be a vulnerability that requires an awful lot of effort to address. You might be able to hit three or four patches that don't require reboot, you know, just knock those in, you know, real time. I'm, I'm okay with that. But when it comes time to reboot my system, you know, I've got a plan downtime, you know, that, that I need to adhere to. And so let's try to stick to that. So I think the interface kind of steering me in the direction of that would be really good. But also 
you know, I don't know how many of your listeners are aware of this, but um, in I found some research that shows that in 2020, the most exploited vulnerabilities were as follows. Netscaler, which popped at the very end of 2019. So that makes sense. There was an IoT exploit that was number two. But number three and number four were Apache struts related. One was from 2006. The other's from 2012. Right, So this is 2020. This is eight years since the number four vulnerability was released. One of the things I personally would like on that interface that we've described here is aging. Show me how old that is. Show me uh, that that patch has missed for eight years, for 14 years, uh, has missed its patch cycle. And uh, I need to be able to justify why we haven't applied that patch from 2006 or, you know, all of the Windows OS patches going back every month to 2018, you know. So show me some aging information on that dashboard too, I think. Yeah, that's a that's a funny you bring that up. I used to uh, show often in class, like the DBIR used to say, from this year's data, here were the years of the exploits that were used that successfully led to a breach. And it was like back at least 12, 13, 14 years. And I always ask the class, like, what do you think the oldest actually worked exploit that's included in this data was? No one would ever guess like 14 years. But of course, like that stuff is out there. So yeah, it's funny that that data backs that up as well. So beyond that, as you run a vulnerability management team, what are the things you're looking at? Maybe not so much on the single vulnerability level, but across all of time to measure whether your team is being effective and is acting as quickly as they should kind of for each individual incident that's going on. Like, how are you measuring yourself? I guess is really mm-hmm. the question there. So I think I can think of a couple of different ways. One thing that in a past life kind of bothered me is um, we were on the hook to scan the um, internet perimeter at least once a week. And as you know, there's a lot that can happen in a week. You know, if I accidentally opened up SSH on one of my internet servers or DMZ servers, someone's going to find it probably within a couple minutes, maybe within a couple hours, and the brute force attacks are going to start. And so I was looking at this metric of time between scans of seven days, and it was it was bothering me. Uh, and so I was actually at a conference. Another SANS instructor was telling me about a strategy they used to reduce that time significantly. I came back from that conference, implemented that change, thanks to the friend that I mentioned earlier. And we cut that time down from seven days to about 18 hours between scans. And the beauty of that was I had data, I had a measure that showed that if that situation happened, if let's say 22 got opened on a DMZ server to the internet, we could show closure within 24 hours. Now, that's a huge improvement over what before would have been seven days to even find and report that vulnerability, and then potentially another couple of days to weeks to address it. So that's just one of the ways that uh, I've seen to measure the effectiveness of the vulnerability management program. If you look internally, you know, there's a lot of programs that get kind of hamstrung by, you know, hey, how do I measure? There's 2 million vulnerabilities. There's 8 million vulnerabilities. How do I show improvement? And you really can't on that scale. And so what I look for is, you know, how do we break it down to something that makes more sense? I mentioned earlier you know, when I was talking with the, the business VP about the number of vulnerabilities on his laptop, 
there were 15 vulnerabilities, critical vulnerabilities on the average laptop in that organization. Now, what that translated to is a clear message to their board of directors that something is happening that's causing the patching of laptops to not like I, I suspect that I posited that if we were to make a couple of small changes to process, we could get that down to about three to four. There were some significant barriers to getting it from 15 to three or four that we could overcome with some tough messages. And so the measures, the metrics helped drive that conversation. And once it got down to three or four with those few key changes, then the level of difficulty became, you know, exponentially higher to get it from three to four down to one or two. So I think you've got to take the data you get and don't get hamstrung by five million. That number five million is intimidating to anyone. But if you can bring it down to, you know, the average server has 200 vulnerabilities and 15 of those or 12 of those or, or 85 of those are critical vulnerabilities. And here are the categories that they're in. And if we make these three changes, we can drop that number down to, you know, let's say a fraction, you know, let's say 25% of what it was. I've had a lot of success taking the data and representing it in that way. Very cool. So let me rephrase that in a different way and tell me if it still holds correctly. Kind of looking for the Pareto principle kind of thing, right? Like yeah. you could say we have a lot of problems, but most of them maybe can be gotten rid of with a few key changes. And so ultimately it's a prioritization thing again, right? Is like what yeah. are the smallest things we can do to make the most impact and figuring out how to communicate those through kind of data-driven you know, metrics and conversations around what you do know and putting those in the right people's minds at the right time. Yeah, but don't be fooled by that because the, you know, 80% might only reduce your risk profile by a very small amount. The simplest yeah. patch might be to address, let's say, port 80s open on web servers that don't need it to be open. Let's let's focus on 443, you know. That might be a fairly small change, it might be a very small risk reduction for that organization. Whereas switching off RDP in the world of Eternal Blue and, and WannaCry, that would be a big deal. So, yeah, I'd say Pareto, but make sure you're measuring the right stuff. Make sure you're focusing on the right stuff. Measure it in terms of risk, not in terms of volume. Yeah, yeah not, not count of vulnerabilities, but using those yeah, things right. that we talked about earlier from the research yeah. to actually show what is the highest risk. Absolutely. Cool. All right. To follow up uh, for a final question here, are there any great resources that you would recommend someone who's trying to maybe build up or, or operate a patch management or vulnerability management team? Where should they go? Where can they uh, go get some awesome information and kind of experience on doing this sort of thing? Any good stuff out there that you know of? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to go straight toward the SANS courses on vulnerability management, but they do have a couple of really good courses in this space. The 460 course I know uh, very well. You know, short of that, there are tools, uh, like I mentioned, Tenable Nessus, uh, which you can go and download and actually run in your environment for free. I think the latest iteration they have gives you the ability to scan 16 endpoints for free. You can save that data in several formats, and then you can go online. There are tools like the Vuln Whisperer, which I'm sure you, you remember, John, which you can import that data. And now you can manipulate that in an Elasticsearch interface that might actually be really familiar to a lot of your listeners and you know visualize the data that way. So I can't think of any books. There's tons of blogs 
uh, about vulnerability management. There, I've heard some podcasts. Uh, you know, Paul from Paul's Security Weekly is a longtime vulnerability manager as well, and and every time he gets involved in a vulnerability management discussion, it kind of goes off the rail because um, you know he's been there, he's done that, he's. Yeah, he's got strong opinions on what's vulnerability management. Are we managing the vulnerabilities versus, you know, just patching and things? And and I think there's a lot out there if you go looking. But, you know, I'd, I'd try to get my hands on the tools first and see where that takes you. Very cool. All right. So if people are looking to connect with you online, where can we find you? I think the easiest way is to look for me on Twitter. I'm at Baker C. All right. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Definitely picked up a lot of stuff here. And I think our listeners will get a lot out of this from your experience and everything uh, you mentioned in terms of communication and tools and how to look at this. So thanks for joining us today on the Blueprint Podcast, and I will catch you later. Thanks much. Hey, Blue Teamers. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Blueprint. If you've got a second and want to help support the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It would be really, really meaningful to us. And if you have any ideas or suggestions, I would love to hear them. Your reviews are going to be one of the best ways to help others find this podcast. So anything you could do would be a big help. As always, thank you for listening. You can connect to me on social at SecHub, S-E-C-H-U-B-B on Twitter or on LinkedIn. So until next time, thank you for listening to the Blueprint Podcast.